0: listeners to the nk news podcast recorded here in seoul on monday 6th of january 2020 my guest today dion kim is a senior advisor for northeast asia and nuclear policy at the international crisis group she specializes in both functional and regional issues nuclear non-proliferation the two Koreas, east asian relations and security she has written in leading publications including foreign affairs and foreign policy uh, she is a leading a frequent commentator on cnn and bbc among other networks and is quoted widely in global media Welcome and thanks for joining me today, Duyon.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Uh, Right off the bat, I want to ask you something topical and potentially explosive just to get the listeners excited. Uh, In the last week, we had uh, something disruptive happening uh, with the killing of Iranian Republican Guard General Soleimani at the Baghdad airport in Iraq by a U.S. drone strike. Some have suggested that the landscape has shifted dramatically and this could have interesting implications for the Korean Peninsula, including the prospect of expanded North Korea Iran cooperation and President Trump's possible willingness to consider military force against the North. It could also, independently of this, Make Kim Jong un fearful of attempts on his life or those of his top lieutenants. How do you see this?
1: Sure. So I think it's quite easy to speculate that Kim Jong un is perhaps worried, and worried is an understatement. I think we can safely assume that North Korea closely watches America's dealings with the rest of the world. And so I would not be surprised if some, especially South Korean observers, uh, might speculate that Kim Jong is scared. But at the same time, uh, you know, this is also where diplomacy is extremely important uh, to even hint at or suggest that that might be something in the cards with for North Korea from the US government uh, would be uh, extremely dangerous and risky. Now, at the same time, you know, you mentioned possibility, the possibility of expanding North Korean and Iranian cooperation, you know, that actually is a possibility. Mm. Uh, You know, we, if you remember, uh, last year in 2019, Kim Jong-un talked about expanding and strengthening uh, relationships with like-minded countries, with socialist countries, with others that are, like he said, friendly to North Korea. Yep. In that sense... Uh, Regardless of what happens uh, in Iran uh, this time, I think we can expect that to happen. Uh, the, the other concern that I have is potentially Washington being preoccupied or too occupied in the Middle East mm.
0: uh,
1: and potentially having, you know, which is a very realistic scenario of having bandwidth challenges for the presidents and for and the And we've White seen House. that before, haven't we? And we've seen that before. And so if, and this might open. Create an opening uh, for either a looming crisis on the Korean Peninsula, basically meaning something that a, a provocative act by North Korea. Or it doesn't have to be something with a Big Bang. It can actually be the quiet and steady uh, increase in development and sophistication of North Korea's nuclear weapons. Uh, and so my concern is that while Washington might be more preoccupied in the Middle East, that perhaps uh, we forget about what's actually happening on the ground in North
0: Korea. OK, so uh, but to, to turn back to President Trump for a moment there, so until last week, it was quite possible to say that he'd shown no signs of uh, a desire to escalate conflict. Conflict by use of kinetic force, uh, certainly not in, uh, well, even in the Middle East, I mean, he was pulling troops out of, of Syria, right? He was uh, he was withdrawing from a lot of things. And, and now, has that changed the game a little bit, that he's shown a willingness to maybe take a big risk by using kinetic force?
1: That really remains to be seen. Uh, you know, as much as we do see some parallels with the Trump administration's approach to world affairs at the same time, uh, just speaking with colleagues in the administration, there is a uh, room. And there actually is quite a bit of um, discontinuity in a good sense, where they are approaching different topical issues, different countries in a case by case basis. So this really remains to be seen. I think uh, it's still encouraging that we're hearing President Trump say things like whether he means it or not, uh, that he doesn't think Kim Jong un is going to break his promise mm. to him. Uh, we, we have to see. And that remains to be seen. I mean, frankly, Kim Jong un has already started to break one of his promises, like the resumed activity at these at satellite yeah. launch facility, and, and whatnot. And so, and then also his declaration that he's going to resume uh, testing of nuclear devices and long range missiles. And so, this all remains to be seen. I just hope that uh, the Trump administration does. Uh, take a case-by-case approach and I do hope that they don't the White House is not overly consumed with just the Middle East mm. as much as it's important, as much as it's a grave situation over there very important, but there's also other parts of the world that are also very important too.
0: Okay, uh, it must be very hard for the ICG to fulfill its uh, self-declared mission of playing a role in conflicts when some states for example China and North Korea do not actually show any interest in engaging with the ICG at all. Uh, Uh, North Korea, of course, since 1953, has been very picky about who it wants to talk to and when and in what format. Uh, How can we convince North Korea to be more open about engaging with the ICG?
1: You know, my understanding from my new colleagues at Crisis Group is that we find that most governments actually are interested in engaging with us. And so I don't see this to be an issue. And Crisis Group has a 25-year track record of providing independent objective analysis and policy recommendations about uh, how to prevent and solve conflicts in many of, you know, the world's most challenging contexts. So we always try to speak with all sides in conflicts and with all states and organizations uh, that have influence, both positive and negative over conflict actors. And so sometimes, you know, we do that publicly and sometimes we do that more quietly. But as I said before, my my new colleagues, I, I don't think they've ever, I have not heard of an instance where let's say the Chinese that you've mentioned right now, do not want to engage with them. Uh, I also, I mean, even though I'm quite new to crisis group, I, I have not yet experienced that. So there might also be a difference between approaching certain experts for their subject matter expertise versus approaching a representative of an institution, any institution, uh, because they want to approach the institution. And so uh, these two different aims don't always coincide. Sometimes they do, but sometimes they don't.
0: Uh, Let's talk now about your own understanding of Korean peninsula affairs, including inter-Korean relations and uh, North Korean denuclearization. How would you define the current state of play, including a little background history where necessary? Where are we at at the moment in terms of uh, Uh, dealing with North Korea?
1: We're in a very unfortunate situation and quite frustrating, frankly. North Korea is refusing to allow negotiations to function properly. And what I mean by that is they are refusing to even come out to what we call working level discussions. Mm. Uh, and that means between lead negotiators of both sides. Uh, what we have seen is even though they publicly have make it, they made it sound like uh, they are open to such prospects of discussions. Uh, we've also seen them trying to aim for a, a a leaders level meeting instead. despite the agreement between President Trump and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un at their DMZ meeting to even have these working-level talks. Uh, So structurally and fundamentally, we're in that challenge. Uh, The other issue right now is that, and in that same vein, is North Korea trying to Gauge and understand American thinking and American intentions from afar, listening to and reading talking points and sound bites and and official statements coming out of Washington. Uh, and as you know, may know very well, these public statements also have a domestic audience that they have to keep in mind. And so, public statements cannot always uh, reveal the full mm. uh, range of either possibilities or even the entire truth uh, of the situation. And so this is where, again, you know, and I'm not trying to point fingers and blame anyone, but but we have seen proof of this with Steve Began traveling to the region recently, constantly, repeatedly saying, let's talk. Even in private, he's been trying to contact North Korea and yet to no avail. And so this, we can only... Uh, assume that this is evidence that North Korea is not interested in these working-level discussions.
0: There is a, a hotline between President Moon and, uh, and Kim Jong-un. Obviously, there's no way we can know if and when they're used. But do you imagine that uh, President Moon is, uh, at times like this, calling his uh, colleague in Pyongyang and saying, you know, come on, why don't you send your people out for meetings, that kind of thing?
1: I do not know, as a matter of fact. Um, I don't have that intel, but I would not be surprised if the South Korean government is sending messages to the North, because that's usually what happens. Mm. But the other unfortunate situation that we're in right now is North Korea has basically cut out South Korea in this process of diplomacy of last year. Uh, and especially since Hanoi, the Hanoi summit. Uh, and the North uh, has not been um, shameful at all in hiding that fact that they are upset with South Korea, they are frustrated, and that frustration from North Korea's standpoint comes from them thinking that South Korea just has not pulled, weight, pulled its weight enough to try to convince Washington to
0: lift sanctions. So they could be simply just not answering the phone at all if and when Moon calls.
1: It could be. And so again, I, I don't know for sure, but we, there have been instances in the past in the history of inter-Korean relations where the South has sent messages but the North has not picked up the phone.
0: Mm. Now you wrote an op-ed for the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists uh, towards the end of uh, 2019 about how North Korea ended that year with possibly no Christmas gift and we'll put a link up on the website for uh, listeners to have a look at Um, you may or may not be aware that the Russian Orthodox Christmas Day is tomorrow. Could it be that Kim was actually thinking about tomorrow when he mentioned a Christmas gift.
1: Who knows? And who knows if he's really going according to the Russian Orthodox holiday. Well, we know and not- he
0: wasn't going by <laughs> yeah. the Western calendar.
1: Not the Western or the American. Um, you know, this is where I don't think it's such a big deal that they did not present a gift around Christmas. Uh, I think that we will see some sort of gift, good or bad. In the coming weeks or months uh, ahead, North Korea is, uh, as I've written in that piece, North Korea comes with many gifts and it has in the past, and 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 it, the gifts have ranged from cooperating diplomatically to um, giving concessions, uh, and also the the other extreme to. Um, not just not only testing weapons and provocative and dangerous weapons, but also shelling a South Korean island and killing South Koreans and torpedoing a South Korean vessel. And so, uh, the North always presents a range of gifts, and it's a matter of time and circumstance as to which one we might see. Uh, I think uh, North Korea's the report that came out of its party plenum at the end of December. Uh, we can regard that and take that as. Uh, essentially as Kim Jong-un's New Year's Day address, which he did not deliver uh, in its place. Uh, mm-hmm. Actually, and so, I want to put
0: that one on hold. Sure. I want to come back to the plan because I've got one more follow-up okay. about the Christmas gift. So you ended that piece uh, for the uh, Bulletin of the Atomic Scientist uh, with the sentence, the challenge is creating an environment that elicits a welcome gift from Pyongyang and satisfies the interests of all stakeholders involved. So the question is, I guess, how can the world do that effectively at this point in time?
1: Yes, and that's the billion-dollar question.
0: (laughs) Isn't that what you're trying to do? (laughs) Well,
1: well, sure. Um, You know, and that's a tricky one because it can be argued that, on the one hand, Washington has tried uh, by presenting, whether it was – Uh, in the Stockholm meeting in October or even after to try to present a range of scenarios and possibilities. Uh, But it can also be argued that the Trump administration did not make headway because these proposals did not fit North Korea's so-called calculation. That it wanted to hear. So, in other words, uh, they they did not fit North Korea's terms mm. of any deal or any agreement, future agreement. And so, uh, this is also where it's it's difficult. And now with uh, what we're hearing from Pyongyang since the end of December with that party plenum, which I know we'll get to. Mm. Um, prospects don't look too good going forward this year.
0: Okay, and let's go to the plenum right now. What uh, takeaway message did you get from the recent, well, both the, the plenary meeting and the uh, Central Military Commission, which was held a few days before the plenary meeting, both of which Kim Jong-un apparently chaired?
1: So it's crystal clear that North Korea will take a hard-lined Position this year. It's going to continue to or even ramp up nuclear weapons development. It will test various types of weapons and parts as it it so chooses and it and based on need. But at the same time, what's interesting about that report is it was actually quite measured and calculated. I did not read it as some sort of um, enraged North Korean leader leashing unleashing his anger at all. It was nothing like that at all. Um, he's basically saying, "I am going to go about my nuclear business as usual," but he left the door open just ajar, uh, saying diplomacy is still possible. But it sounded like uh, not only is a price tag has a price tag gone up for his nuclear weapons to so we even discuss them, yep. but the price tag seems to have gone up to even resume negotiations. Mm. And so, this is a very, it's almost an impossible situation that oh. we're
0: in. Yeah, actually, uh, in terms of the, the the assessment you gave of the tone of Kim Jong un's message, it was very much in line with what uh, uh, Dr. Andre Lankov said when he came on Now Russia. We had a kind of a, a quick, rough and ready post plenary meeting round table last mm. week. Uh, and he said very much the same thing that he thought he could have been a lot more aggressive, but he wasn't. And, and so, that suggested to him a more uh, measured tone that he's leaving the door open a little bit. So, you're in. Uh, uh, in good company there
1: oh, well that's great and Andre Lankov is is fantastic i think and it appears that they're still differentiating America between Trump and the rest of the country Mm. or government. The party plenum report, or basically Kim Doan's comments, sounded like everything is contingent upon the US. So, for example, whatever this new strategic weapon they might unveil, they will unveil this year, or whatever test they do of whatever weapon, it all depends on Washington. So, in other words, they seem to be saying if President Trump himself Uh, does anything or says anything to spoil the relationship with uh, Kim Jong-un, then North Korea will most likely take necessary or appropriate measures that correspond to that. Or if they see the U.S. government doing something, whether it's catching uh, a North Korean entity that's in violation of the existing sanctions regime. And we see news of this, perhaps that aggravates and provokes North Korea. And so I think the degree of provocation will really depend on how North Korea perceives America's intentions. Uh, And so when it comes to this, you know, I know a lot and even myself, we're all guessing on what this new strategic weapon might be. And I know, you know, there are a lot of very smart colleagues who suspect it could be a test of like, whether it's an ICBM Mm. uh, or a new ICBM. Uh, I think it's pretty safe to assume that whatever they start testing or showing, uh, it would be qualitatively new, whether there's some sort of new feature, function, component, whatnot. But I see them having three choices. One is to test something. The second choice is to just show it.
0: Like at a parade. At a
1: parade or something. Or third is to actually proclaim that they've deployed That weapon. So they have three options. And here again, uh, testing something would I think be when if and when they believe President Trump himself has really spoiled that relationship, or they're really uh, upset. Otherwise, just unveiling or showing a weapon would not be crossing President Trump's. Uh, red line Mm. of long-range missile tests and nuclear devices. But North Korea can still reap the political benefits and impact of at least showing something.
0: Okay, you wrote an interesting piece in The National Interest at the beginning of October last year titled How to Make Proportionate Bargains with North Korea on Denuclearization and Peace. And I would advise all of our listeners to go and read that. We're going to provide a link to that article (laughs) on the, the podcast page. And I'm going to read a key paragraph from the early part of that article. If and when substantive negotiations take place, any comprehensive agreement or smaller deal or deals to kickstart the process will require proportionate horse trades so that Washington does not give away high-value concessions too soon Without Pyongyang working for them, or else the U.S. risks losing leverage quickly during negotiations and North Korea pocketing early gains and walking away from the progress process without taking significant steps towards denuclearization. Pyongyang will be most interested in ultimately receiving both economic gains and security guarantees from Washington. It will likely tactically choose which one to ask for depending on the state, mood and trajectory of the negotiations. That sounds very sensible. I think that's probably still quite true today. Um, Then halfway down the article, you present two fascinating tables in which uh, certain proposed or potential concessions are categorized as being of modest, medium or high value. And the tables are from a paper you wrote for the Center for a New American Security back in June of 2019 called Negotiating Towards a Denuclearization Peace Roadmap on the Korean Peninsula. And the first table lists some possible U.S. concessions divided into three types, those being new relationship Sanctions relief and peace regime. And the second table shows North Korean succession concessions into three types fissile material and production programs, nuclear weaponization program, and nuclear weapons related delivery systems. So, this is fascinating. I've never quite seen it laid out so clearly before. Let's talk a little bit about those possible concessions and their value. Um, of all the modest level things that the United States could offer to North Korea initially, what do you personally recommend?
1: The modest category would be things like time-bound sanctions, exemptions, and waivers. You know, I feel like I need a cheat sheet to look back at my table that I wrote (laughs) just to remind myself. But But that that
0: concept of time-bound sanctions, uh, carve-outs, and waivers, let's talk about that. What does that actually, how would that work?
1: Okay, so instead of completely removing them, because when we say, or when I hear the word sanctions relief, I think of, that translates in my mind as removing a or some sanctions. Now, I advise not to go that route because once you remove one or some or several sanctions, it will be almost impossible to put them back in place because you'd have to go back to the UN Security Council and Beijing and Moscow most likely will not uh, vote to pass new resolutions on new sanctions or even to put back old sanctions. And so one way to keep sanctions in place but still provide North Korea with benefits would be to go the exemptions and waivers route. So it's so think of it as a pause
0: mm-hmm.
1: in the sanctions implementation, uh, and so you basically give them, let's say, a year or a year and a half or two, years, get whatever the 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 timetable is, uh, in return for whatever North Korean uh, step and measure that Washington would want to see from it. So, for example, if if the trade off is going to be a verifiable halt in fissile material production, uh, then in exchange we will provide. North Korea with time-bound exemptions and waivers on X, Y, Z sanctions, and so that and the X, Y, Z can be part of the five U.N. Security Council sanctions that North Korea has wanted lifted since Hanoi.
0: So the time-bound exemptions and waivers would they have to be? Actually executed by the Security Council, or is that something the U.S. could do by itself?
1: The U.S. would be working with the S- Security Council, and so the yeah. Security Council would technically have to give its blessing to right. do this. Uh, and so this way, you have a, you know, it, it's like having a so-called snapback mechanism in place. So yeah. if North Korea either renegs or does not fulfill its end of the bargain, then you say, okay, the pause is gone. We lift the pause, and we're back to normal with the sanctions implementation.
0: Is that something you anticipate that Russia and China would be on board with, with uh, approving? A- a a time-limited waiver and exemption? Or would they say, look, we'd rather just end it completely?
1: Oh, I'm sure they would love to just end it completely because they know that that's what North Korea wants. And we've seen this with the Chinese and Russian joint resolution. Right, very recently. Exactly, at the UN Security Council. But uh, my concern is more um, North Korea. As much as I advocate for this formulation or this approach and I think this is the right approach and it's not just for the in the interest of the United States North Korea can benefit immensely from this approach at the same time I actually am skeptical whether North Korea would like this approach because mm. uh, North Korea would know how its economy functions far better than anyone else uh, and so in that sense giving them you know sanctions exemptions waivers they might th- they might see that see it as just small crumbs.
0: Mm. Now, in terms of uh, well, out of all of the modest level things that North Korea could offer to do, you know, in the early stages, what would you prefer to see from North Korea?
1: From North Korea, yeah. you know, at the very least, uh, you know, and you can do this in different sequence and orders, but to have a verified halt in its fissile materials production, and so this would require having inspectors. And experts on the ground to make sure that they have halted their fissile material production, but that could be a very challenging task, especially because North Korea may not want to provide access and open up their facilities. So before before they do that, I think one reasonable—well, this is reasonable in the international community's eyes—but mm-hmm. um, step would be for them to present a list, an inventory of their fissile material production facilities. I know this whole issue of a declaration or an inventory uh, was pretty hot last year, I guess in the beginning or around the summertime-ish.
0: That kind of a declaration would also include location of facilities, right? of course. Which is, you know, potentially opening yourself up to pinpoint, you know, surgical strikes.
1: Right. And that's the rationale. That's a logic and rationale that North Korea has given, which, okay, if you put yourself in North Korea's shoes, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I mean, this is normal protocol whenever these things happen, And at the same time, North Korea can choose what facilities to put on this list. Mm -hmm. And what normally happens in these situations is when a host country presents a list, typically... There is no blaming and shaming and finger pointing. The initial list is always going to be incomplete Mm -hmm. and it's always going to be inaccurate. Even the most cooperative country like South Africa, when it handed over its list, it was full of mistakes and Ah. it was incomplete. But the point is not to point fingers. Now, a big caveat here is there might be some factions in the Trump administration with that are politically motivated and want to derail the process and might do that. And that's always the concern. And that's something that the State Department needs to manage and right. try to prevent. But what happens is the country presents a list and then the uh, the experts or the inspectors, there's a back and forth of, okay, uh, well, what about this area? Or can you give me more information about this point? Mm-hmm. And and the back and forth is very, it's supposed to be very businesslike.
0: Yeah. Okay so that it's all part of the process. It's, it's part simply of getting normal something process. on the table. Yes. Yeah. Now it, okay so if you would rank uh, a a list an inventory as a, a hang on an item of modest value that North Korea could put forward where would you rank the shuttering of the Yongbyon nuclear facility?
1: So that's okay. Now I might really need a cheat sheet for my table, but uh, I can see that going in either the modest or the medium. Uh, And really, and I do put a caveat in my table and my report of depending on the trajectory and status of negotiations, because, you know, it's not the the table that I present is not an exact science. And so it really depends on how you add the values. The price tag to each of these bargaining chips. So Young and and I know that you know this very well that there's been there is a big debate among nuclear experts and regional yeah. experts on the value of Young Right,
0: because it was it was discussed at Hanoi, wasn't it?
1: It was. Yeah. Uh, and, and so North Korea
0: clearly sees it as a high value item. North
1: Korea sees it as a high value, or at least they are trying to make it seem like they see it as mm-hmm. a high value. But you know, I'm in the camp that believes that. Uh, While Yongbyon is not entirely meaningless, so it is meaningful, there is significance to it, but it's still a small fraction of North Korea's nuclear weapons program and the key engines of their program are believed to be outside Of Youngbin, so here it's. I'm not saying let's not start with Youngbin. Yeah, Mm. sure, let's start with Youngbin. That's fine. But what would be the U.S. concession in return? And that's where I I emphasize the whole proportionate bargaining. And frankly, I I support the Trump administration's decision to walk away from North Korea's proposal of Youngbin for the five U.N. Security Council sanctions being completely lifted. Now, if if we were able to discuss an exemptions and waivers route instead then i then i'd be in support of Yongbyon in exchange for some time-bound exemptions and waivers of these key sanctions that North Korea wants, eventually removed.
0: Now, if I uh, understand and remember correctly, uh, Siegfried Hecker, a, a U.S. nuclear expert, says that Yongbyon is a big deal because it produces 100% of North Korea's plutonium and tritium supply, the latter which is necessary for hydrogen bombs. So he'd see that you know, as quite a high-value item.
1: Sure. So this is where you know the debate really picks up steam mm. because I mean what he's saying is not entirely false. Of course, you know he's a he's a highly respected. I highly respect his expertise, but it, it depends on where you place importance. Is it on the plutonium tritium or is it on the enrichment uh, uranium enrichment that is so much easier to hide mm. and to do uh, without? Satellites or intelligence picking that up, and so and, and then it then becomes a priority list of of what should we start with. So again, I'm not saying that Yongbin does not present meaningful clues into North Korea's nuclear weapons capability. Again, it, the the key issue is what should the United States give in return for it?
0: Yeah. Now it's been six months since that paper that you wrote for the Center for New American Security with the two tables. Looking back now, is there anything that you would add, subtract or change?
1: Well, I think the basic framework and the basic principles, but here again, you know, I do caveat in the report uh, that there will have to be tweaks depending on the geopolitical situation of the time and depending on the security situation on the Korean Peninsula. And this is where you're going to have to tweak certain elements, Uh, And so right now we're in a situation where even if Washington wanted to take some of my recommendations, it's it's almost impossible to do it Mm -hmm. because there are no negotiations. You have to actually be face to face and talk in order to try something.
0: Right, and, and that also raises the question of, uh, you know, how well would it work in, in practice in a negotiation? Because often North Korea comes forward with very uh, all-encompassing or diffuse demands, like, you know, we want America to uh, cease its hostile policy towards the DPRK. How does one deal with that?
1: There is quite a bit of continuity in North Korean demands. When they say hostile policy, it's typically um, sanctions, military exercises, and human rights criticisms. Now, what's, what I find interesting is uh, North Korea's negotiating style tactically on, on the smaller issues under Kim Jong-un versus Kim Jong-il, his father. So for example, under his father, Kim Jong-il, what we saw was North Korea would present a long laundry list of asks To the point where the United States did not know, or anybody, not just the United States, nobody knew what North Korea really wanted until the very last minute they'll pocket a concession. That's when you know, okay, that's what North Korea wanted. Uh-huh. So it leaves people guessing. And I say not just the United States because it, the same thing happened in inter-Korean negotiations too. But what's interesting to me from an analytical standpoint is under Kim Jong-un, North Korea is very transparent and upfront in what it wants at this Particular stage of negotiations, they did that during inter-Korean negotiations. When was that? Starting twenty eighteen, after Pyeongchang. Yes, after the Pyeongchang Winter Olympics, and we're seeing that, or at least my assessment is, we're seeing that with uh, between the United States and North Korea as well. So what I mean is, North Korea, at least in Hanoi, was saying, "We want Young We'll give you Young in return for." UN Security Council sanctions being lifted. Then after Hanoi, they added in, we want all military exercises halted. What we're seeing, what we've been seeing is both in the inter-Korean negotiating process and now is if, if North Korea under Kim Jong-un does not get exactly what they want in that very tight box, and there's really no room outside that tight box of negotiations, mm. then they'll walk away. And they've done it.
0: And they've done that. Yeah, most recently in Stockholm. Uh, Now, in negotiations, North Korean diplomats like to be calling the shots, but American diplomats are unlikely to want to let them have the upper hand. And so what in a negotiation, what happens when, uh, you know, the negotiation itself becomes the power struggle without even thinking about what's on the table in terms of offers? What can be done? Well,
1: that's also the other million dollar question, you know, because we're seeing Washington try um, incessantly really to say, let's talk, let's talk. And North Korea is not willing to come out to the dialogue table. And, and you know, we've seen this in the past, too, whether it was during the six-party talks or, mm. uh, you know, when, when a key player like North Korea just refuses to show up at the negotiating table, the whole system breaks down. And you just have to wait yeah. and wait until they decide to come back. Uh, and so this is where, you know, it sounds like what North Korea is doing right now. When I mentioned before that they seem to have raise the price for resuming negotiations, what I'm seeing is they're also flipping the script, so to speak, in terms of the sequence of the give and take in the broader approach. So for example, in the history of negotiations, whether it was agreed framework or six party, the approach was always North Korea, you first take some denuclearization measures and then we will reward you mm-hmm. with XYZ. And back then, until now, I think North Korea, despite its demands to not do it in that order, still just had to because um, their nuclear weapons capability was nowhere near where it is now. But now, with its confidence coming from its technological sophistication, what we're seeing is North Korea demanding the other stuff first before it even not only engages in taking denuclearization steps, but even having conversations. So what we're seeing is uh, North Korea saying, stop military exercises, lift sanctions, and then maybe we can discuss denuclearization. It's not, maybe we'll take some steps, it's maybe we'll discuss. And mm. so now in that sense... They're trying to flip the order.
0: What if, okay, if, no, if Pyongyang won't give up all of its nuclear weapons, as some analysts suppose, what's the best case scenario? Or do you think that there is a scenario in which Pyongyang does fully denuclearize? I, I mean, I guess I'm asking, is it, you know, is um, arms control a viable alternative to complete disarmament?
1: Limiting and freezing or halting, whatever word you want to use has always been the first step to a longer process of denuclearization. You know, denuclearization or or nuclear zero uh, should always and still continue to be the ultimate goal. And it will, of course, have to be a longer term objective. Uh, In the near to midterm, of course, the first step has to be um, halting and freezing their production and their capabilities and then to begin to roll back. Even if we wanted to stick to um, this approach that always has been the case, again, we're in this situation where North Korea does not want to talk.
0: Yeah, well, yeah, that's that's the ultimate stumbling block, isn't it? Um, Though, But coming back to to things like sanctions relief and welcoming North Korea into the community of nations, if that's to be done at the end of the process, presumably at nuclear zero, that's really... You know, effectively telling North Korea, you're going to have to wait a very, very, very long time before you can, you know, join the community of nations.
1: That is, and so I think this is this is where my exemptions and waivers route um, mm. should be giving at least conceptually them some benefits along the way, uh, because it it is not. I do not think it is realistic to wait until the very end uh, to lift sanctions. Uh, I think some uh, here, too, you know, just like I have that chart with medium, modest or modest, medium, high value concessions, even with the sanctions, you can divide those up or prioritize them from uh, most significant to least significant in value. And Mm. so you start peeling away some of the the, some of the lower level or, I guess, less significant um, sanctions first, and then you work your way up. But we will have to give North Korea something. But again, here, too, is being careful not to give away the house too soon. Uh, Things like, you know, my personal view has always been that the United States should not have given military or President Trump should not have given away military exercises so soon. Mm. Uh, but But they tried it and look what's happening it doesn't seem to be working. And so again, you know, like renowned Korea expert Victor Cha, his book says, North Korea really is becoming increasingly the impossible state.
0: Now, some non-denuclearization related questions. Uh, do you believe that North Korea tries to subvert South Korean society to lead to unification under its own system of governing?
1: That has always been North ingrained, enshrined in North Korea's national objective. Now, I know it sounds almost funny or laughable in the 21st century, also because North Korea doesn't really put that at the forefront of its talking points. But to reunite the Korean Peninsula under the North Korean flag actually always comes up in every New Year's Day address, Mm. uh, especially under Kim Jong-un too. Uh, And so I I would not dismiss that as something that is just laughable. uh, That's there, but again... I, I don't see that happening anytime soon, of course, and there is uh, the strongest deterrent of U.S. forces presence on the Korean Peninsula, so I don't think that's, that is going to be an impossible scenario for North Korea anyway, uh, but that's why there are a lot of Korea watchers and experts who worry about both uh, the halt in military exercises and a reduction or withdrawal of U.S. troops from the Korean mm. Peninsula, because that could, they believe, create an opening for North Korea to try to unite the country by force.
0: But is it important to uh, to distinguish between stated goal and actual goal and capability? I mean, let's say, let's assume, for example, that when Kim Jong-un says we want to um, see, you know, South Korea joined with North Korea under our flag, under our system, let's say that's his actual goal. Can North Korea actually do that? I mean, is it you know, I mean, let imagine if, if tomorrow somehow the South Korean people said, OK, let's join with you. Uh, could you imagine the North Korean system controlling the 45 million people of South Korea?
1: You know, as difficult as it is to imagine that scenario, my sense is that whether they are expert in the issue or not, their concern with North Korea's growing nuclear capability, nuclear weapons capability, is the fear that such capability will enable North Korea... To force that scenario.
0: Under threat of force.
1: Under the threat of force. Even if they don't use their nuclear weapons. Of course, everybody's concerned here about the use of nuclear weapons. But the possession of nuclear weapons still can be used politically. And so that's where you get concerns among South Koreans.
0: Should both Koreas recognize the legitimacy of each other as nation states?
1: So their constitutions do not. In practice, uh, they basically do. And the inter-Korean agreements that you see, political agreements, make it pretty clear that they do. But the gray area is when there is provocative action coming from the North and even threatening behavior and and actual killing of South Koreans uh, and and assassination attempts and terrorist acts like blowing up civilian South Korean airliners uh, and
0: whatnot. All right, let's uh, talk a little bit about you. Uh, Do you see yourself um, and do you act in your professional role uh, as a a Korean citizen, a world citizen, something else or a combination?
1: You know, I think the way the world is, I think a lot of us consider ourselves to be global citizens. Mm -hmm. uh, But professionally, I, I try to take a very balanced approach in my analysis and my recommendations. And I try not to let my personal biases get in the way because I really believe that policymakers should be presented with a range of options. And this is also where, you know, it is important to try to understand, for example, North Korea and the way it thinks and to try to convey that in our writing or in our activities. Uh, Because, you know, I've always believed that policies are best crafted when you know your Mm counterparts. And so this is something that I try to do uh, in my work uh, to present all all cases and all sides. And this is also when, when I'm working on U.S.-South Korea negotiation issues, too, is to try to present both sides, both the American view and the South Korean
0: view. You're uh, quite active as a public intellectual on Twitter. I'm a Confessed, non-Twitterer. Uh, so who's your audience when when you're tweeting? I mean, who are you thinking of reaching or trying to reach?
1: Oh, honestly, though, I wouldn't really put myself in that category because you've got um, great colleagues and friends, people like Vipin Narang and Jeffrey Lewis, who really have a huge follower following. And I actually just stumbled into Twitter, and I think I'm still learning, getting used to it, even though I've been doing it for a while. I, I, I had to start tweeting when I joined the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. What, what, was uh, that
0: part of the... Uh... Well,
1: that, well, yeah, that was part of the, I guess, expectation or hope that oh. everybody, all the scholars do that, uh, which makes sense. I've noticed that Twitter, it's it's a great medium to reach out to the broader public, and the broader public is very difficult to, to really know who's out there. Mm. Uh, and that's okay. But it's also a, a useful platform to have... Um, A debate and and discussion among specialists and with journalists, too. And the other useful point about where I find useful with Twitter and even Facebook is a lot of the information comes to you uh, in your feed. Uh, things like articles and um, other publications and and, and news. And so in that sense, I kind of use it for for those purposes too.
0: Now you have an enviable skill, and that is you're uh, perfectly bilingual in both Korean and English. I think it says this in your profile, so it's fair to say that you like to remind people that you're uh, perfectly bilingual. Um, As listeners to this podcast will know, I struggle to achieve even fluency uh, in English. What (laughs) does fluency in English and Korean add? What's the the value out of that? Do you find that there's a significant difference in analysis or conclusions made by people who are only fluent in one of those two languages.
1: I think it's an added component to people like me whose day job is to analyze um, and to research. So, for example, I, I will look at whether it's documents or audio uh, in the native official language first um, before any translated. And this goes both ways. Mm-hmm. Any Western books, I'll or I guess American books, I'll look at it in, in the English language first. And same thing with Korean. If a statement comes out of any of the two Koreas, then I'll look at the official language first because translations are hard. And whoever does translations and inter- interpretations, they have a very hard job and it's not easy to do it. Mm. Inaccuracies are inevitable. Um, it's normal too. Uh, and so if you really want to understand the true intention and meaning behind the country or person uh, speaking or writing, then I think it's really important to to read it and hear it in the mother tongue first.
0: Is there a risk of using bilingual fluency as a trump card, kind of saying, you know, you don't understand Korean, I do, so? No, about, not about... at all.
1: No, not at all. Because and and I I do not. I've never thought of it that way at all. You know, as I mentioned before, I think it's just an added mm. component or an added tool to analysis and research. I don't think that just because you don't know a language, it does not mean that you're any less of an expert or less of a specialist. I think there are I think everybody has something to add to the debate, uh, And even if you've been in the business for a short while or a long while, still you have something to add to the debate. Uh, And so this is just my, I guess, my contribution.
0: Uh, Last couple of questions. So more broadly, uh, I want to ask one question about Northeast Asian security and uh, uh, what specifically Yeah, Northeast Asia. Do you see a mechanism currently available for regional security issues to be discussed and handled in a less emotional way than they currently seem to be?
1: That's a good question. And it's a difficult topic for Northeast Asian countries. Uh, as you may know. Yeah, a lot uh,
0: of legacy issues remaining. Lots
1: of legacy issues, lots of history issues, lots of sensitivity in the region. And, and Northeast Asia is not unique in that way, of course. And so this is where I've I've personally always wanted to see, and I'm not the only one, uh, I've wanted to see um, Northeast Asian countries, and this includes the United States too, to eventually get to such a, a point where they can start discussing Establishing a a regional security mechanism, Uh, and I know this has always been tried Mm. and talked about for a very long time. I was excited during the six-party talks process when they actually had that uh, in writing Mm. in their 2005 joint statement. Uh, and they set up those five working groups. And one working group was the Northeast Asia Peace and Security Mechanism group. And that, the intention for that was supposed to be to try to construct this type of, sort of like a, I guess, similar to like an OSCE process. I was
0: thinking about that in yeah, Europe there. Yeah,
1: exactly. And so, and, and I'd love to see that, but, You know, there are many different factors and and challenges here. I think fundamentally, if if we have to compare with the Helsinki process, the Helsinki Final Act really was fundamentally a grand bargain between the East and the West. If we we want to try to apply that approach or those principles to Northeast Asia, then the, the fundamental question becomes, can a grand bargain be reached in Northeast Asia? And this is where it's rife with debate among scholars and experts but realistically uh, anytime soon I think a grand bargain would be very difficult if not impossible because that will have to that basically means the United States and China will have to strike a grand bargain mm. uh, and that's where realistically in, in at least for now I don't see the chances of that.
0: That uh, working group that you just mentioned, it started off in 2005. When did they last meet? Do you happen to know?
1: So you know what's interesting about that is when the 6 Party Talks broke down in December of 2008, that working group was the only one that met again in 2009, one more time. And that was chaired by the Russians. But after that one meeting in 2009, everything else, I mean, it all broke down. You know, and that was fascinating to me. And from an analytical perspective, I don't really know, I don't really have a conclusion as to why that why they were able to but but i think that still gives some inkling of hope that okay there is interest but what will motivate the six parties to get together again to actually have a real discussion to even to begin a discussion and i think it would have to be um driven by politics in a good way meaning Mm. having political leadership having leadership in any of the six countries um, decide and propose to get together to even start a conversation. But even starting conversation is difficult in the Northeast Asian context.
0: It may be a crisis that's needed.
1: You know, and that's where some experts say that a crisis is actually an opportunity. Mm. Um, But, you know, knock on wood, because a crisis can also be mishandled and go badly. And so we don't want to take that risk either.
0: Okay, wrapping up. So best case scenario, where could we be a year from now if your recommendations and advice are followed?
1: Oh, goodness. Well, (laughs) who knows if my recommendations are even being heard, but we a lot was done during the six-party talks. It, but they that's never, 12 years ago, It was really 12 now. years ago, but at least you know things were done, especially with the agreed framework as well. They always ran out of time. Mm. Administrations changed. Next administrations overturned the previous agreement. You know, it, so there was always a fight for and a struggle with time. And my concern is that that might happen again if President Trump is reelected and if. There's a a renewed push to resume diplomacy with North Korea. I mean, it's always better if you start earlier with any of the denuclearization measures that might be taken. But I I do worry about time. And I also worry, uh, my concern is just lack of interest from North Korea's Mm -hmm. perspective. Because, you know, what we've been seeing with Kim Jong-un's 2019 New Year's Day address uh, and also their party plenum report that basically is like his 2020 New Year's address. It sounds like North Korea is saying, yes, of course, we need the United States to lift sanctions, but we've been resilient for so long, and we will just go about our way. And it's it sounds like North Korea is still confident that Beijing and Moscow will not ever let uh, the North collapse. Mm. They might just trudge along.
0: So what's the worst possible case scenario a year from now?
1: reliable, functioning, fully operational nuclear weapons that could reach any part of the world.
0: So with a delivery system that works. Yes. Yeah. Well, uh, speaking of time, as you mentioned, we're out of time now. So I want to thank you very much for joining me today, Dooyeon Kim. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, that wraps it up for today's podcast episode. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast series and also consider buying a subscription to nknews.org where you will find the best and most up-to-date specialist journalism on all matters related to North Korea. Our thanks, as always, go to James Fretwell and Chad O'Carroll for facilitating this podcast and to Arius Dare, our post-recording producer genius who cuts out all the extraneous noises, awkward silences, bodily noises, etc. Costs involved in the production of this podcast were partially funded by the Unique Fund for which we are extremely grateful.